Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Hi, Cameron. Good to chat with you again. Hello, Jonathan. Good to be back. And great to see you in person at Glebe Books in Sydney for the launch of Rigged and to see you to see some of your chat with Ross Gittens. How was all that? Yeah, it went really well, uh, Jonathan. Um, good conversation uh, with Ross. Met a lot of people who might be listening into this podcast. So that was terrific. Didn't have too many disagreements with Ross, but uh, it was really nice to start spreading the word and getting people thinking about grey corruption. And um, I actually was just before talking to you, I, I was just looking at my at my messages and you're back in Queensland now. Um, and so there's, a, I, I'll try and make a long story short, but I have an ongoing joke with, um, with a friend and he always sends me stuff when Australia gets covered in the world media. Mm-hmm. Um, I came up with a, with a phrase relevance deprivation syndrome, which I always say when, um, yeah, to kind of to explain certain behavior of Australian elites, like, cause there's a long time there's been like kind of perverse, desperate desire to, be relevant like go around Mm. yeah go around saying that we in australia are targets of terrorism too and jumping on any possible (laughs) fragment of evidence that there are terrorists out there who are interested in australia and there are obviously other areas of life where sometimes australia gets covered in the world media but there's a kind of barely suppressed glee when we become in any way relevant capital r relevant on the world stage anyway that's a long-winded way of me saying that this friend sent me um a link to the US comedian Jimmy Dawes latest YouTube video all about Queensland, the Queensland government's docking of the pay of teachers who are unvaccinated. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, no, that relevance. Yay. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you gotta wonder what the motivation is there, just to join the world club and and seem like part of a gang and important. Yeah, that's the most bizarre thing I've heard. I don't really know what there is to say about it other than um, stupid. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's just stupid. Um, Everybody's had COVID. If you've been teaching with 30 snotty kids for years, I think your immune system is pretty good. (laughs) Um, Okay. So I was going to ask you about this really interesting sort of a Barney that I saw you were sort of engaging in on Twitter, which was um, it was a kind of a tweet showing a long line of prospective tenants from, it was, I think it's from an Irish newspaper article spilling out onto the street in, in Ireland, in Dublin somewhere, maybe yep. and hundreds of people lining up, wanting to inspect just one available um, house to rent. Um, and I think your response was something along the lines of, Hey, this whole article is about, some rent freeze in Ireland, but this is happening everywhere. So how can it possibly be just some local condi- you know, local, local law change in Ireland that's to blame? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, to be honest, this is I'll get onto this one in a second, but yeah, this is a bit of a genre of um, mm-hmm. takes that you see online, which is uh, you observe a global trend happen in your area And then you blame your local political opponents when that trend is negative (laughs) and take credit Mm -hmm, for it when it's positive uh, with your political allies. So in this case, uh, tight rental markets in Ireland, well, um, 
this is a global trend. And so someone online is saying, see, I told you this niche local rule that may or may not be doing anything is to blame. Um, and yet there's pictures like that in cities across Australia and across the US and across Canada. Um, so it's really hard to pin down and it's clearly a political statement, not a well thought through policy com- conversation. I- I'll give you another example that's been going on lately as well. Um, and that is the disarray of airlines. You just recently flew yep. that internationally, isn't that right? And yep. how- and I think we talked, we touched on this before. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I've noticed recently coming out of the US is a lot of talk, for example, there's a commentator, Matt Stoller, who's really into regulating big business and antitrust laws, who's worried about competition. And he's now come out and blamed local US lack of enforcement of antitrust regulations in airlines for airlines losing baggage and you know not being on time in 2022. And again, that's just, you know, that's his political bandwagon. But if he can go to Europe, he can go to Asia, he can go to the Middle East, he can come to Australia and find exactly the same pattern happening in airlines. And of course, it makes no objective sense that domestic enforcement in the US of some antitrust regulation in airlines has really anything to do with the broader global trend. Mm. It's something I've noticed and something I, I seem to be getting into arguments about at the moment. I mean, I'm interested to dig in a bit more into the the rental uh, stuff. Um, mm-hmm. What is the global trend that is the real answer for this? Yeah. So, look, I, I think it's there's a lot going on, and I don't think we can really understand the last two years of the housing market without understanding the enormous policy changes that came with COVID. Uh, certainly you and I think that many of them were foolish, um, but they were relatively common throughout the world. So one of the big things was um, a decrease in occupancy of households. What I mean there is that you know, in the past, people were more comfortable sharing with others in a large house, but during COVID, uh, that that trend changed and people wanted the extra space for working from home. Perhaps share houses thought, oh, it's better not to live with too many people if we're all going to get locked down or catch COVID. <laughs> and yep. a survey from the Reserve Bank at the beginning of this year actually found a, a big step change in households of sh- sharing households of adults. Uh, and it was so significant that it would have swamped um, more than a year's worth of additional households from normal population growth prior to COVID. So essentially, although we had uh, closed borders and slower immigration, what we had instead was people moving out of their homes across millions and millions of homes, just one or two people moving out of each one, all at the same time, trying to find somewhere else to live. Uh, So that that pattern, I understand, is, is... relatively common globally as well. The other couple of things that are going on is that uh, we had a big swing away from city living to lifestyle regions, I'll call them. So up and down the New South Wales coast, the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast in Queensland, a lot of smaller regional towns that where 
essentially rents had been flat for more than a decade, suddenly found these millions of people um, more attracted to their town, bringing their big city incomes to outbid the locals for the more premium rents, rental uh, properties. So there was a shift of incomes out of the city towards the regions. And what we're seeing in 2022 is a shift back. So for example, in Sydney, uh, we're seeing rents rise more in the inner city suburbs this year. But what we actually saw was two years of rental declines after prior to COVID, also a couple of years of declining rents as well. So when people go, oh, rents are up 20%, yeah. if you compare 2022 to 2017, that five-year period, they're actually up only a few percent in a lot of the areas that are attracting a lot of media attention. Um, right. And you've yeah. got to understand that these are big adjustments and there's a lot of people moving and uh, across the rental market as a whole, only very few dwellings actually come up for rent each year and change hands. So we're trying to get a lot of movement of people uh, through this narrow gap. This, you know, We're marching the army through this narrow pass of actual vacant properties in certain locations that come up when other people leave. Um, so that's why you end up with this queuing um, and these uh, long lines. Now, the the classic example to so this case in Ireland was uh, blamed on their local new tenancy protection laws, but you can go to Houston in Texas in the United States where it's renowned for having no zoning and planning. It's also renowned for having no tenant protections. And all the pre- all the press commentary is exactly the same. They just don't have queues for rental inspections because they actually have rental brokers. So in Houston, right. if you want to if you want to go rent an apartment, you actually pay a broker to go and find it for you and negotiate with all the the land the the agents representing the landlords. So you don't end up. That with, sounds like actually a pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can do that here. You can get buyers agents if you're buying property to go and negotiate for you. Um, but it's even more extreme in in Houston where rental brokers are very common. Um, So you don't end up with people queuing on the street, which is more a culturally British, United Kingdom, Irish type of thing, but you do end up with brokers uh, talking to the press about the same economic phenomena of queuing and bidding up rents, but um, behind closed doors. And you had a bit of fun just actually a few minutes ago before we recorded this. Um, tweet well, retweeting an article about this guy who called in to two GB. He owns two hundred and eighty three properties, and he complained about the Greens' proposal to freeze rents temporarily. And well, hmm, is this uh, is this for real? That's a good question. Now. Let, remind me to come back to this general push for rental controls and tenancy protections that's happening globally um, because of this yeah. adjustment. But let's just quickly talk about uh, this example. So Max Chandler Mather, he's actually my local uh, federal MP here in Brisbane. Uh, I know Max. One of those newly elected Greens. Correct. Yeah. I know him pretty well. Um, and he has been out there agitating and saying we're gonna we want to freeze rents on current tenants for two years um because rents have just recently boomed and uh there's a you know 
there's a lot to be concerned about with the implementation of what they're proposing. Um, but he's got the conversation going about, you know, the questions around rental are really, you know, landlords are winning and renters are losing. We would like renters to win more on this sort of zero sum game. So he started this conversation and then someone calls the 2GB radio program in the talkback radio and says, oh, you know, I pay all this land tax, $7,000 property each year um, on my rentals. And, you know, I can't freeze, I can't stop putting my rents up. And the, the host, Ben Fordham, says, oh, how many rental properties do you have? And he pauses and he goes, oh, um, uh, 283. <laughs> <laughs> and Ben is, the host is just <clears throat> shocked. He said, oh, I thought you were going to say two or three, 200, nearly 300. Uh, you know, he doesn't even know what to say. <laughs> uh-huh. And, um, yeah, the guy basically says, oh, yeah, he seems a bit embarrassed that uh, he has this massive uh, balance sheet of, of property that he's had for many years. Um, but <laughs> so so my, my, my mind goes to the following things first politically this is a very bad look uh for the sort of landlord side of this political debate um phoning in talk back and having a whinge that you've got 283 rentals and can't put the price up yeah one man owns 283 properties there's probably 800 people living in there who obviously can't afford to buy the property and apparently he's the guy we should be in favor of politically so i think it's a bad look and so my mind goes to well is this staged is this the greens playing politics and getting a stooge to call in and and make a joke <laughs> of the other side uh-huh. like does it really if it's ma- not <laughs> like what you, you've got 283 rentals you're making um you know the average rent is maybe even if in regional towns there's 15,000 a year times three you're up four and a half million dollars of rent a year in gross and so i calculate probably you know one and a half million net plus in the last 12 or 18 months you've probably made six to ten million dollars in capital gains as well and somehow you thought oh the smart thing for me to do right now is call talkback radio so look i i don't understand the politics of it but yeah and so my mind also goes to just literally calculating uh, his income from that and and so even if he clears only five thousand a year per property we're talking one and a half million dollars a year um income and you know the combined income of his tenants is you know, none of his tenants are going to be making very good money and he's making it uh sitting on his ass and, and complaining to talk back radio so um yeah that's just a, a really puzzling feature of the the debate going on right now but i don't know like it's so standard now just to see um the lack of ability i don't know if it's just in australia or just any maybe it's any privileged class of people lack of ability to connect their own situation to the larger societal picture like it's everything's in a vacuum it's just you know, hey, you know, maybe if you had all these people living, owning their own homes instead of you owning 283, you'd have less crime in your city and you'd have a better quality of your life and your kids would have a better quality of life, you know? Just this inability to 
connect their individual circumstance to the bigger picture. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, I'm trying to come up with a word for what you're describing. And I guess it's just selfishness, self-centeredness. But I, I think more subtly, I call it the expectations ratchet. So as you accumulate things, you expect more and more. You never expect to go backwards. And so I'm sure this guy has worked hard through his life and accumulated this. But now he's kind of developed this expectation that oh, I can't go backwards. Um, you know, I deserve everything I've currently got. And therefore, I also deserve more than what I've currently got. Um, yeah. But obviously, yeah. you know, we're just having having a joke about this one situation. But the reality is that there are um, 3 million plus rental households in Australia with um, 8 million plus people in them. And every time they pay more, some other landlord wins. So it costs them more and the winners, some, someone else in the, the Australian population who, who's their landlord. So there's a bit of a zero sum game here. And politically, we do have to come up with a balance there. Um, and I don't think the Greens policy of freezing rents across the board and some of the details about when a property comes vacant, you've got to rent it out at the same market price as of August this year is just not going to be workable. But definitely limits on how much you can put up rents on sitting tenants and protecting them from eviction is standard uh, in so many countries and places. Well, right, we right. We don't. Yeah. Um, it's it's just so heated to get to something that is blasé, normal, um, and expected in many places. Yeah, there was this talkback session I heard on the ABC, and it was about this is a bit of a diversion, but there's a link. Um, GPs, there's there's like why GPs are not bulk billing anymore. It's so hard to find bulk billing GPs. Why they're um, charging more? You know high fees and you know this, this this kind of problem and there was this you know person that called in and it was quite a few actual call, callers like this and they were like i i've got this great doctor they don't bulk bill anymore but you know I, like i'm prepared to pay for good quality medic you know good quality service from a gp you know you pay you get what you pay for you know I, and, and i'm a good basically saying i'm a good person because i value my doctor and i'm prepared to pay people should stop whinging yeah. and I, and I just thought, oh, hang on a sec. It's not about whether you have a great GP and you're prepared to pay. It's about the whole society yeah. and what the whole of society can do when they get sick. Or is it just about how when you get sick, you're okay and everyone else can you know, mm-hmm. get stuffed? You know? Totally. Uh, look, there's winners and losers from everything. And uh, I, 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 it is weird how we can't have a policy debate about system design. It's got to be about who's the winner and loser today, not... What is a system you would love your children to be born in, regardless of what your household income is? Um, do you know? Oh, now I've remembered there's a great uh, philosopher. I don't know if it's a martyr center. I don't know if it's much, much older. But the, the question, the, the, the conundrum proposed is, well, uh, when talking about equality and, and, and systems that are fair and effective, um, you want to think not from your personal perspective, but uh, if I was to be a random child born into that system, which system would I prefer to be born into given the distribution? Yep. And I think uh, yeah. it's almost, it seems almost impossible to have that conversation in the mainstream press because everyone wants an angle and a 
personality and a hero and a villain. And uh-huh. in, in reality, that's you, you're trying to understand this abstract system as a whole. Okay, so shifting gears a bit to super, um, you're, as usual, engaged in lots of discussions about super, and I just can't resist getting into them with you because it's, it's really interesting and it affects me and so many other people. Um, the I think it was Paul Keating that you, you tweeted um, that he had made some remarks a few years back and kind of supports stuff that you've been saying, and Paul Keating, of course, widely regarded as the godfather founder founding father whatever you want to call it of our super system if you wanted to fill us in a bit on that (laughs) yeah so one of my twitter followers actually emailed me a link to uh, a financial review article from 2018 where paul keating uh, the headline let me read it to you is paul keating pushes for national insurance scheme to support elderly which if you didn't know the background of australia's super system and age pension if you read that headline um you know uh, former prime minister pushes for national insurance scheme to support the elderly you'd be thinking that that country is trying to enact australia's age pension system which is a national insurance scheme to support the elderly Uh, but paul keating of course thinks the age pension system is very bad for some reason And yet in these speeches he was making uh, in 2017 and 2018 that ended up getting covered in this article, he was saying things like, um, oh, what's the best quote? Only the federal government has the capacity to ensure across the generations. So he's sort of admitting that if you want to ensure your income in old age, you can't do it by yourself. Everybody has to do it collectively. That's what insurance does it pools resources and the federal government is the one to do it um and uh yeah i say the federal government's the only one because um insurance insures against you know chance events but getting old's not a chance event because everyone does it so it's it's not the type of insurance that private providers would like to give because they just have to pay out everything they get in Um, so he admits that the federal government's the one to do it He also says this, under the scheme, the national family would wrap its arms around the elderly to guarantee them an income, healthcare, and accommodation. Uh Uh-huh, yep. And I just, my point is that this is exactly the age pension. This is exactly the system that we have already that he wants to replace uh, with compulsory private saving. Um, the age or pen- that he says for some reason can't be relied upon. Can't be relied for, upon. For some bizarre reason. Yeah, and, and so I, I just don't understand the cognitive dissonance here of, on the one hand, saying the age pension's bad, superannuation's better, and then turning around and saying, actually, superannuation can't insure uh, for old age income, and we need some kind of national family public scheme to guarantee income, healthcare, and accommodation to the elderly which is exactly the points I've been making uh, for the last Uh five years about why we don't actually need superannuation because it doesn't actually do the thing uh, that it's meant to do, which is guarantee the healthcare accommodation and income of the the elderly. And here's Paul Keating saying it and then coming to the opposite conclusion for some reason that totally contradicts (laughs) his view. And so, um, yeah, it just makes me think that it's all political. It's just the position on super is political. Um, 
if you can say totally contradictory things and then just fall in line with your political um, sort of mates, um, then it's hard to believe a word that you're saying. So, yeah, I had a bit of a, when I discovered that, I, I had to have a bit of a dig at him uh, online for sure. Yeah, I also saw that on the Substack you posted something this week about income smoothing and and super and it was something looked like a table that was a bit about your own situation. Am I right? Yeah, Jonathan. Uh, no, the the table was my a chart of my super balance, and I, I did want to have that sort of personal touch there and show people that look i'm paying super it's going up and actually it's gone down a lot the last few months and it's not been doing much for me i think in financial topics we're very coy about admitting what our real incomes are our real super balance and our real cost of living so i just put it out there to sort of be a bit honest about it but the point of um the the article i wrote on substack was that one of the economic justifications that we now tell ourselves for compulsory private saving is that it smooths your lifetime income. So what that means is that when your income is very, very high, you save. And when your income is very low, you dissave. You sell your assets that you've saved and get cash and spend it on goods and services. But yep, yep. Which makes sense, right? So in your peak earning years, you want to save then and in your lower income years, like when you're retired, you want to spend more than what you earn in those years. Of course, the problem with super, it doesn't smooth your income. It doesn't take your high income years and give, give you your money back in your low income years. It only takes in your younger years and gives back in your older years. And they're not the same thing. Your younger years, especially your 20s and your 30s, are not your highest income earning years. Generally, that's your 40s and your 50s and often your 60s for many, many professionals and, and people who end up becoming uh, business owners in their areas. Their yeah. highest income in years are actually much, much closer to retirement and in many cases older than when you can access your super and start drawing it down. And so we've got this perverse... In other words, you could be getting your super and earning heaps of money, is that what that's right. So in your highest income years, let's just say I'm in my 60s um, and I'm a medical professional. I'm probably in my highest income earning years. I've just turned 60. I can access my super at age 58 or 59 and take lump sums out of it. But I'm also earning more than I've ever earned in my whole life until today. Yeah. So the question is, yeah. well, shouldn't today I be saving and shouldn't I have got that money in my 20s when I was a young doctor, nurse, whatever, shouldn't I have been able to borrow in my 20s and then pay it back now? Isn't that a way to smooth my lifetime income? But you actually made me save back in my 20s when I was poor so that I could have more money now when I'm the richest I've ever been in my whole life. Um, so it, it sort of does the opposite of smoothing your income, which is, again, uh, just another argument we can tick off about super of a good thing it does. And I think if you asked me 10 years ago, I probably would have instinctively uh, said the opposite just through my economic training and almost indoctrination and socialization into the economics community. I would have said, oh, no, income smoothing is really good. This compulsory savings will do that. But, uh -huh. but 
you just have to look at it. <laughs> you just have to literally look. Like, um, you know, I was a late 20s parent of two kids and a family making, um, you know, about $80,000 a year uh, with four people in the household. Like, and I had to pay superannuation. But I've, I've been, mm. you know, that's going to be one of my lowest income years of my life. <laughs> Right, um, and I could have yeah. done with a lot more money when the kids were young, and had a lot more time rather than working. Um, but that's the way this. I've, I've got a, I've got a question. I've got a question. Do you think having the system as we have it, um, kind of one of the unintended consequences is to actually incentivize people to not be an employee, but rather to be a, a contractor, because you get a lot more cash in uh, in your hand. Uh, yeah, there is an incentive at the margin in particular sectors for sure where it's possible. Um, so I, I've done that before uh, with casual teaching at universities and said, you know, I'd like to be paid as a contractor um, the full amount. I don't want to be an employee. And you put, because a lot of unis put 17% of the pay into superannuation. They think it's a great deal for their employees to take 17% of their income and tell them they can't spend it. Which might make sense if the bulk of your employees are in their 50s and high, in their highest income earning years, but not for the younger uh, employees, for sure. Well, thanks very much for, for this week. Great discussion and look forward to talking again next week. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan.